And I'm like, dudes, just think that through. Start start with net zero in 2050, pull that thread a while, and then figure out what you have to start doing today to get there. And guess what? You are you you have stumbled upon the Green New Deal. Like there's no way to do what we what we all understand needs to be done without things that are from the perspective of American politics wildly radical. David Roberts does a lot of thinking and a lot of writing. As a former student of philosophy turned acclaimed energy and politics reporter for Vox. He also frequently speaks his mind on a variety of issues on Twitter. So we thought it would be enlightening to end the 2019 season of political climate by putting a wide range of questions to Roberts on American politics and how to save the planet. Like, is radical reform needed to remake the U.S. power grid? Which Democratic presidential candidate has the best climate plan? What's the most effective approach to climate advocacy? And how should journalists be covering highly politicized issues in today's highly polarized information landscape? I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and host of this podcast. And you are listening to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Joining me this episode, we have Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu, and Shane Skelton, a Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Now, we had so many questions for David Roberts that the interview ran a bit long, but I truly believe it is worth a full listen because you don't often get such a wide range of views on one podcast. And arguably, we got into more of the good stuff toward the middle and the end. Plus, we conclude the show with our Say Something Nice segment, so stick around for that. We hope you enjoy this conversation and that you've enjoyed several other conversations over the course of this year. And if so, we'd love your feedback. So if you have some time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts over the holiday break. We'd really, really appreciate it. We'll be back early in the new year. And in the meantime, here's our interview with David Roberts. First of all, is it Dave or David? Well, I tell people David, but there's some sort of weird gravitational attraction to Dave where everybody ends up there anyway, so I don't really care. <laughs> just <right>. gave up. <laughs> all right, it's yeah, David at certain, then. At a certain point, I just threw my hands up. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get it right. All right, well, thanks again for coming on. So uh, you are a leading voice in the climate and energy space, and your explainer journalism has helped tens of thousands of readers, if not more, better understand complex topics like performance-based rate making for utilities or how, say, distributed batteries could benefit the grid. But you've also waded into broader political issues, like how the impeachment of President Trump is feeding into and accentuating these tribal divisions in America today. So we're going to cover a lot of those topics over the course of this interview. Uh, but first, I wanted to know how you came from being a PhD student in philosophy to becoming a full-time writer and then covering the wonky ins and outs of climate and energy. <laughs> well, I wish it was a more satisfying story, but it's all, it's all, <laughs> it's all random. Uh, one thing happened after another. 
Uh, I dropped out of the PhD program, uh, ABD, as they say, because uh, I got a close-up look at the academic life and was horrified. So uh, then I ended up in Seattle, kind of bouncing around (laughs) from tech job to tech job, competing with entry for entry level jobs with 21 year olds just coming out of college and uh, more or less uh, drifted until about 2003 I think when when literally the first time I went to Craigslist first time I ever heard of or went to Craigslist I saw a little ad for an editorial assistant at a small web publication uh, that was grist uh, and I wrote a long cover letter and said hey I have no journalistic experience or particular experience in the environment, but I really, really want a job, and and I can and I can write without grammatical errors, which turns out to be incredibly rare, even in journalism application cover letters. Huh. Uh, so, long story short, I just sort of like slipped into Grist. I was the fifth fifth person there. Grist is a small for for listeners who don't know, is a small nonprofit. Uh, environmental news site that's been around forever, been around since 1999, believe it or not, and is still around. So I, I just kind of slipped into there and started off doing assistant type stuff, editing, writing news blurbs, that kind of thing, and just sort of slowly wormed my way over into writing. I started Grist's blog back when blogs were a thing, a big thing, uh, and just wrote more and more and 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 uh, developed my voice and more or less taught myself everything I know about energy and climate kind of on the fly in the field. Well, it's also interesting to know that you have a background in philosophy because I think we'll get into some topics a little later on that I think tap into that background you have. But first, we want to start with some straight up climate and energy issues that are really pressing in this space today. So, Brandon, I know you have a question you want to ask. Hey, Dave, thanks for joining the show today. David. David. <laughs> Already, Fox. see? He's, see? Not a good, he's not a good listener, that Brandon. No, he but he said he'd just be, we end up there, so I was like short-circuiting the whole thing. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Um, one of the things I most appreciate about your writing is that you take very dense reports, complex topics, and explain them in a digestible way. And you recently wrote about the radical reform necessary to prepare California's grid for the 21st century, And this is where you discuss the proposal to move to performance-based regulation. So my question is, given the aggressive reductions in greenhouse gas emissions that we need to hit on climate, what do you think is the role of the utility, the public utility commissions, and the federal government in policymaking? So do you think we try to move 50 state PUCs to performance-based regulation, leverage grid assets, data, low cost of capital? Or do you think we need to radically change the way the structure works on energy policy? Because right now, substantial energy policy is made at the state level with public utility commissions. So my question is, can we work within the existing system to make the necessary changes, or does it need to be completely reworked? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. I mean, I I think when I was younger, I would have said the latter. Uh, I think... When I was younger, I had a lot more excitement for big, sweeping, radical reforms of everything. Because if you're just sitting down with a blank sheet of paper, obviously you wouldn't design the sort of monstrosity of a of a Rube Goldberg uh, contraption that we have in our utility sector. And 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 it would certainly be convenient and easier for policymaking if you could somehow just federalize the whole thing, which you know, like. 
the rationale for for not federalizing it in the first place has kind of faded, and it and it just it makes sense to treat it as a national system now. However, uh, uh, having become older and wiser and sadder in a million ways, I I now realize that uh, that <laughs> those kind of things, you know tend to live and die in uh, wonks PDFs and have no chance in the real world. So I think in the in the in the actual world we live in, it's going to be 50 fights. It's going to be uh, it's going to be reform state by state, utility by utility. My hope is that, um, you know, there are are, are are utilities out there sort of pioneering new models and new new um initiatives and trying trying lots of new things. There's lots, you know, it's sort of odd, like even 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I started this, the utility sector was just totally sleepy. You know, this is like a, a this is not a business in any sort of <laughs> capitalist sense. And they, the death you know, spiral just, came along. They, well, yeah, that's, that, that came, that came, yeah, it all came at once. Sort of, <laughs> I watched utilities go from sort of a boring legacy, kind of like my granddad did this and my job is to sit here and count my guaranteed returns and and you know occasionally replace power lines all of a sudden you know comparatively become like this hotbed of sort of like everybody wants them to innovate everybody wants them to solve all these problems it must be quite dizzying to be in that space but my hope is that like a few good examples here and there good models good new models are going to be inspiring and there's going to be momentum there's going to be some you know there's going to be sort of um you know these early pioneers are going to work out the the, the kinks and there's going to be more of a kind of plug and play reform possible in coming years so that kind of like more conservative, small C conservative utilities have kind of a, a more clearer path ahead and are more confidence that it's going to work. So but but, uh, you know, the, the larger question is I just don't see the I, I just don't see any substantial sweeping reform on on the horizon so it's going to be about state policymakers and 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 PUCs one at a time well well even on that state level you know radical reform is possible and you've written about this in part of your four part series on California and the wildfires and uh, not only the growing risks and some of the solutions like distributed energy and grid hardening but also radical reform, as you call it, uh, to prepare California's power system for the 21st century, which I think that general theme could be then copied in 50 different ways. And so as you wrote about, this likely will involve performance-based regulation, which Brandon just mentioned. And if done right, you wrote that California could become a model for a more robust and resilient energy system, which is critical in this era of wildfires and blackouts and whatever else climate change throws at us. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about what exactly you mean by that kind of reform. What is the what is the change you see as necessary here? You know, like your your listeners probably more familiar than most people with the sort of standard uh, uh, investor owned utility model. They they make money by investing money. They get they get guaranteed return on investments. So they go to the PUC and say, hey, we need to invest in X Y Z. PUC says, okay, they invest and then they get a guaranteed rate of return. That's sort of the model of how they. Uh, pay shareholders. So naturally, this creates an incentive to invest, to build, to build things. <laughs> and that made total sense in like the early 20th century when the whole goal of the utility sector was to spread electricity, was to just electrify things, to build things. The whole goal was to build things, to draw private capital in, to assist in building things. 
Uh, but but now, you know, it's built out and we don't need more stuff necessarily. We need smarter stuff and different sort of like financial models and business models and ownership models and all that kind of stuff. But but the utilities still, for the most part, are looking around thinking, how can we spend money? What infrastructure can we spend money on? What can we build? So among many problems uh, of that model is a lot of what we need to do today in the electricity system um, uh, amounts to uh, less, not more. We need to use less energy. That's what energy efficiency is about. It's what distributed energy is about, is more efficient uh, uh, energy use, drawing less on centralized utility power. And all those things are social goods, absolutely ought to be pursued, but they run directly counter to the utility model. They are a direct threat to the to the shareholder returns of these utilities. So utilities are naturally going to be resistant to, to all this thing. So that basic model needs to change. And that's where performance-based regulation comes in, which is just your your returns, your, your profit is tied to performance metrics. So, you David, know, system system uptime or whatever. Yeah. That's Shane. Sorry. Uh, on that point, because I've thought a lot about this too, as, as I know you have, and trying to think about how do you solve for X, right? I think one of the ways is that you make operating expenditures to the extent that they improve efficiency and create a better system, also eligible uh, for cost recovery. I think we've seen some cool things that you've written about too in Vermont with Green Mountain Power and some other more progressive utilities. But when I try to look at the shortest path to solve these problems, I don't get too worked up about the existing utility model because I do think um, cost recovery is a good way to incentivize investors. Um, What about, you know, I've just looked at what if you go to the federal level and put a little more pressure on states? So you you tie the hands of PUCs in certain ways, you create um, incentives for states that adopt performance-based rate making, you know, whenever I bring that up, people say, well, you can't, you can't do that. I say, sure, you can do whatever you want. I mean, as long as you pass a law that that's interstate commerce, you can do it. Like, well, it's too politically risky. And then I think, how is that politically risky compared to some of the broader, bigger, broad strokes ideas that are out there? People can say a Green New Deal could be politically feasible, but no, a, a small tweak to, you know, utility laws is too much. Do you have any thoughts? Are on- you implying that Democrats think that what you're no, suggesting not- is infeasible? No, or- no, okay. everyone. Uh, not, Everyone's it's not a liberal <laughs> conservative thing, in my view. It's people go, you can't go meddle with the states like that. You can't tell PUCs what to do, but of course you can. Um, do you have any thoughts on if that is a good approach or if you prefer something different? That it, it is hilarious. I think anybody who's spent any time studying utility culture or history, I can I can 1000% understand why they would be like, yeah, don't mess with that. Anything else, like literally worldwide revolution before that's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, um, y- you know, I used to be a big fan of trying to federalize at least certain, you know, requirements. And, and, and you know, one of the big uh, reform ideas that's floating around is a clean energy standard, one of the sort of potentially, even potentially uh, bipartisan uh, uh, reforms is a clean energy standard at the national level, which would ultimately bite at the at the utility level. But there's just a culture. I mean, there's this, this culture of states, right? So there's this culture of local control. There's this culture at utilities such that they've kind of written that out of the Overton window. <laughs> and I don't, it, I, you know, I used to talk about it a lot more, but I never heard of a national politician uh, take it up. And, and, you know, what you hear is that, uh, you know, states have different economies and they have different local circumstances and they all have their different needs and you don't want a one size 
fits all solution, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of blowback you're going to get. But I mean, I certainly think, as you say, it's possible, like the feds can do whatever they want if they wanted to create a bill. You know, my my sort of, my my favorite structure would be um, to charge utilities that don't do it and give that money that you take from the utilities that don't do it to the utilities that do it. So you're keeping all the money in the in the utility sector, right? And can't be accused of just sort of a money grab for the federal government. Uh, but 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 create the sort of ongoing cycle of of innovation and competition among utilities. Shane, for this, do you support that for this money? Yeah, I mean, I, Shane, do you? Would, what do you think? I mean, at this point, I would support anything. I'm, I'm, I'll yeah. sign my name. Well, we're anything. putting it to a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Wondering Brandon, if you Brandon's would, trying to see. There's a bipartisan. Brandon, Brandon's uh, trying to catch me with my pants. <laughs> down agreement here. between and, and Shane and, and David yeah. Roberts. No, I mean, so, so what I would say is, I don't know, you know, if, if that exactly how I would design it, but I think certainly I would create, if I were a king for a day, a legal mechanism whereby. If utilities want to make these, you know, you have some sort of standard that that requires a clean clean energy, and then if they want to make those investments, uh, it has to be eligible for cost recovery, even if it's not just poles and wires. So I don't I don't know if, if David and I view it exactly the same, but it seems like we pretty much agree on the outcome. Yeah, it's just um, the the ba- the basic background fact here is that fighting fifty battles seems just wildly impractical, right? I mean, it just seems like comp- we don't have time. Especially given how complex and like difficult every one of these battles turns out to be, it just it seems unthinkable to go through 50, 50 of these right in the amount of time we have. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if like some sort of quasi federal uh, solution gains gains uh, steam in coming years. Well, we're talking about this because you know the power sector is responsible for roughly a third of emissions. Uh, the transportation sector in the U.S. is a bigger emitter overall, but the power sector is so key, and how utilities are regulated is so uh, intrinsic to that. And so we have to kind of go down these rabbit holes, I think, to figure out how we decarbonize the power sector. And you mentioned a clean energy standard at the national level. Just for our listeners, that would be setting a percentage of renewables or maybe even low carbon resources like nuclear uh, and and mandating that 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 target get hit. Um, I, I just bringing it back to California, I wanted to note again that PG&E's uh, $13 billion settlement was just shot down by Governor Newsom just in recent days, yes. which I thought was interesting oh, to your goodness. coverage, David, because you point to these radical reforms needed and there could be an opening here in PG&E's bankruptcy to make some bigger change. And it seems like Newsom might be open to that, but the timeline is tight because PG&E wants to wrap up their bankruptcy proceeding. So it's unclear exactly where that will go. Yeah, and it's and it's hard to see. I mean, there are finance guys at the table. There are panicked politicians at the table. There are greedy executives at the table. But I'm not hearing a big voice of like earnest energy wonks at that table. I don't have a lot of I don't have a great faith that this sort of panic scramble that's going on in California is going to produce great results. I want to quickly touch on uh, nuclear power because, as you know, I'm sure there have been some fierce debates on Twitter over the years about the role of nuclear power in America's energy mix. And we're seeing this play out in the Democratic presidential primary with candidates like Bernie Sanders calling nuclear a false solution and, and wanting to phase it out while other candidates are more open to it. Just to get you on the record on this, what, what you've learned from your reporting, what is your view of first existing nuclear power plants and the role they should play? And then where you think nuclear technology might be going in the U.S.? 
Sure. I like to I like to separate the nuclear <laughs> discussion into kind of two buckets. There's and the first is just nuclear as a as a technology. Uh, uh, and, and on that score, I think um, I'm sort of uh, with the what I think is kind of the kind of the consensus view these days has become the consensus view, which is that if you have a bunch of giant power plants creating carbon free energy. Uh, yeah, of course you want to keep them open as long as humanly possible. Like we need, as I said in my in my post about this, we need more carbon free energy, not less. Like that's it seems like a pretty simple guide. Even if that includes subsidizing them, because that's where this is kind of playing out is at like the regional grid level, right? And how you compensate. Absolutely. These I mean, it would be weird. It, it would be weird for for climate and clean energy people to all of a sudden get scruples about subsidies here, like. You got to subsidize anything to make it work in the face of incumbency and 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 uh, you know sort of path dependence and all this kind of stuff. You have to subsidize, like get over that. Like the subsidies alone don't daunt me. The it's a legitimate question. Like there's opportunity costs. Like could that subsidy do more good elsewhere? But in this sort of like flawed, crap political world we have, if you can gin up some support for existing nuclear plants, it's not necessarily fungible. It's not support you can just point elsewhere. So if you have it, use it, I say. I, I mean, to me, that's to me, the question of existing nuclear plants is a pretty is a pretty obvious. It's pretty it's really it's like a it's a it's a it's a change up down the down the middle to use a sports metaphor. My 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 last sports metaphor of the of the day. <laughs> and um, what about what about future uh, technologies? Yeah, on the future, I mean, my my sort of take is that existing the existing generation of plants and the existing industry is sort of a dumpster fire, and I feel like that's been uh, uh, demonstrated what ought to be to everyone's satisfaction at this point. Like they just step on the rakes again and again. They're politically daft. They allow sort of corruption and and, and poor maintenance. They everything goes wildly over budget. Over costs, ratepayers get screwed. Like the existing industry that's trying to build the existing generation of plants, I think is a dead end. Like I absolutely think the amount of money it takes to plow into and build and get operating a nuclear, a, you know, sort of a, like a gin, gin two gin, whatever gin we're on, a nuclear plant is is better spent elsewhere. So I, I would more or less cut bait on the existing nuclear industry if they can stand on their own two feet fine uh, you know and fine if you want to like if you want to like rationalize the regulations and all this kind of stuff people have great faith that there's like some huge regulatory barrier i i think that's a small piece of the puzzle but if you want to rationalize regulations fine i do have hope for you know uh future versions of, of of nuclear just like everybody else i i like small you know pebble bed whatever meltdown proof all this stuff that's been i've been told just around the corner for also decades now um fine if it comes fine great like absolutely we should plow money into r&d for that stuff and trying to help that stuff across the the valley of death into commercialization just like we do for any other promising carbon-free technology, absolutely. Uh, uh, but we shouldn't bank on it, <laughs> right, or put all our cards on that or any other bid. So that's like, that's nuclear as a technology. And then there's like nuclear as a cultural totem, <laughs> which has taken on all sorts of bizarre power and meaning in all these kind of identity fights among various factions 
of people. I mean, one of the one of the great uses of nuclear power is if you don't like lefty activists, and it seems like most of our political culture is united in their disdain for lefty activists, the ones actually trying to make things Amen. better. <laughs> Uh, uh, then, then you can. Then nuclear is a great tool with which to bash them, right? I'm so sick of all that. The, all the cultural fighting over nuclear to me is just like silly. What I think is interesting here is that there's fights within the left on the future of nuclear between renewables only and people who are open to a broader portfolio. And then I hear some Republicans talking about the need for nuclear power as a security element and keeping that expertise in America. And there's, as you yeah. say, David, lots of rabbit holes to go down in a bit of a cultural food fight David, happening there. I want you to know that Julia was so excited to ask you that question because she may be the only person <laughs> that is on Twitter as much as you. And I believe this to be just a Twitter fight that was so uninteresting because I do think there's consensus on it. But I it's lost. It's not playing out in I, the I regulatory that decisions that way. <laughs> so let's move to another topic. David, we, we are less than 60 days away from people voting in the Iowa caucus uh, for the Democratic oh, primary. So um, what who's of all the Democratic candidates for president, whose climate plan do you like? What role do you think this is going to play in the Democratic primary? Yeah, here's here's my line that I that I use as preface to this anytime I'm asked about it, which is that the the distance between <laughs> or, or or let's say the size of what's possible, even in the most optimistic <laughs> take, right? The size of what's possible for the next Democratic president is way smaller than the size of any candidate's plan. Right. So so in a sense, like in a sense, this this endless discussion of like whose dream plan is more ambitious is like, I don't know, I guess it's like a signal of I guess you can learn something about what the candidates, you, you know, value or who they're listening to. You can learn something about the candidates through them. But what you're not going to learn is like what's going to happen on, on climate and clean energy policy. What's going to happen on climate and clean energy policy is going to be absolutely proscribed and, and restricted by Congress, by the filibuster, by numerous other competing priorities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on down the line. And what the next president's going to be able to get done is just going to be a, a, a fraction of, of this like grandiose plans like it it pains me to say that but that's sort of like the truth so so like you know like vote for vote for Warren over Buttigieg because she's you know if you want to or 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 Bernie over Warren or whatever on the basis of climate but don't do that on the basis of thinking you're actually going to get what's in their plan <laughs> you're 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 really not David, do you think the activist class is is aware of that? Because I, I kind of laugh when I watch these debates and I see all these plans. I do like learning. So to the extent that good staff puts together good climate plans, it's great to see you know what a menu of climate plans would look like. Totally. But I get the sense that people really think like if you watch sunrise they really think that that extra like you know one year commitment you're making to go carbon neutral in 2049 instead of 2050 is a game changer. <laughs> do they not get that none of this is going to happen, do you think? I don't I mean there are many actors within the political milieu which I often wonder like how aware are they of their shtick and how and how sort of bought into it are they I could ask that question about a lot of people who are involved in political debates including these kids like I know the leadership of 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 the sunrise movement pretty well and they are I will say especially relative 
I don't know, I don't want to like inadvertently insult anyone, but especially relative, let's say, to older generations of activists, they just strike me as 10x like more savvy about politics and more aware of political economy and more sort of self-aware of their own strategy and how it works and are just are just like like one of the few sources of hope in my world is that these kids are really 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 smart they're really sharp and they're open to a feedback and they're open to self-correction I think they've demonstrated so far so it just like I have I have enormously high hopes for them so the question of like how aware are they of the restrictions I think probably you know the ground troops, maybe not. Maybe the ground troops are overly enthusiastic. Most people in any political you know, corner of the world don't know what the hell's going on or what's going to happen or are mostly ignorant of the facts. That's just the, the nature of things. But I think the leadership is very aware that they are out beyond the possible. But they, I think they also view it as their role to, to sort of let Democrats know that they can't that they can't use that to hide, that they still need to be called out and still need to be public about their about their commitments. So, you know, I wrote a post about this. It was just about um, what what the movement would have to do to accomplish anything big on climate. And I just sort of listed the steps, you know, you know, take the House, take the Senate, take the presidency, kill the filibuster, talk Joe Manchin into not being a jerk. And then you get you know, maybe something, and then you got to protect it against the inevitable midterm backlash in 2022. You got to protect it from being reversed by the next, you know, by a Republican president in 2024. Just like there's this whole series of hurdles, any one of which is super difficult. And you forgot and I, the courts, and, David. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's, yes, of course, the courts, uh, you know, m- make sure that it, uh, anything stands up to court challenge. So, they they know that the, especially the leadership and the people who are making the plans they know very well that it's a, that this is a long shot but you know they they quite reasonably conclude that their world is on the line so yeah you know they're going for it that's why i think it's so interesting that there's even fighting among democrats on this which is just politics but you know you see some old guard democrats wanting to put their name on a certain type of climate bill and you know yes. younger progressives uh, promoting the green new deal which i think is curious given everything you just outlined and how big of a lift it will be to get anything major done full stop it's very irritating can i just say that that's very irritating like people just sort of like i mean if there's one thing that climate should do if you listen to climate scientists it should bust you out of your like it should make you rethink things right like and and it just seems like everybody's reacted to everything that's come along on climate in the political world just based on their habits and identities so if the left comes up with a plan there's this whole group of democrats in congress it doesn't matter it doesn't even matter what's in it if the left it doesn't matter what the left produces if the left produces it there's a group of people in congress who will say ah that's too unrealistic and lefty and i want this moderate option and it just becomes sort of like this bizarre argument on climate change because because the science indicates radicalism. There's no way to acknowledge the science without ending in radicalism. So the Sunrise people have ended in one form of radicalism. And then you have people like, you know, uh, uh, John Kerry or, or Biden saying, no, no, the moderate alternative is net zero emissions by 2050. And I'm like, dudes, just think that through. Start start with net zero in 2050. Pull that thread a while and then figure out what you have to start doing today to get there. And guess what? You are 
you you have stumbled upon the Green New Deal. Like there's no way to do what we what we all understand needs to be done without things that are from the perspective of American politics wildly radical. I think there's an important point here about communication because while the solutions may ultimately be effectively the same, how you get there and how you sell people on it is important. So John Kerry's new World War Zero climate initiative at least brands itself as inclusive, as bipartisan, which is one approach. And then the Sunrise Movement is more about mobilizing the youth, being a little more radical, staging protests and things like that. And I don't know, you wrote, David Roberts, that these are kind of competing visions. But you also mentioned in that piece that, you know, you don't have to pick. So it's like we're both, even as communicators, setting these things up as conflicts, but then also saying, really, we just need all of the above. And so I'm just curious, you know, how you think about these competing theories of political change and are they really even competing at all? Yeah, I mean, I I do think I tried to be nice in that piece <laughs> because I have enormous respect for John Kerry and everybody involved in that effort is is has their heart in the right place and is just like everybody else scrambling to do whatever they can. No one knows what's going to work. So, I you know, I tried to be nice to everybody involved, but I do think there is some element of competition. I mean, the the the, the theory that Kerry's working on is the theory that Gore has been working on <laughs> for for decades, which is just that and, and, and I think it, you can even trace it back before Gore to kind of the climate scientists who 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 brought this issue to America's attention. I think the fact that it the fact that climate was born as a political issue in the science community and was initially communicated to the political community by the science community has shaped climate communications in a million different ways, not all of which are good. And, and one of those one of the things I think sort of like you're you're like kind of left brained rationalist, scientist, wonk, technocrat type. And those types dominated the climate discussion for a long time. The way those people think is, almost on a level too deep to even articulate, they think if people find out these facts, the facts, like, they're going to do something, right? (laughs) If the people find out what's going on, they're going to do something. Like, that's just makes total sense to these people. The problem is bad. It's getting worse. There's going to be disastrous effects. When people find out, they will act. And it turns out that that is um, a kind of wildly naive and more or less completely wrong theory of, of what motivates human beings. And it's sort of like, I feel like in the in the decades we've pursued this strategy, you know, with gore like traveling the country, year round still still like doing these town halls and just patiently educating people and raising awareness and bringing new people into the conversation the idea being that if you can just convince a broad enough swath of people that this is real and it's happening then like action will result by magic from it. It just seems to me that that's failed. It just hasn't worked. Like the the convincible people are convinced. The unconvincible people are making the same idiot denialist arguments today that they were making in 2003 when I first encountered them. Literally the same arguments. So like, you know, decades of scientific reports and everything else have, 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 have had to a first approximation, zero effect on the denier community. I just don't think convincing people and making people aware and make and educating people is going to result in political action the way Carrie and people of that kind of generation and people of that world believe 
they just don't know what else to do, it seems like. David, I was just going to say, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the communications aspect of it, but skipping past that to what can actually be done right this second. Um, we talk a lot on this show and, and just sort of offline about when you look at stuff like the Use It Act or R&D for direct air capture or, you know, nuclear, I know you, you talked about a little bit earlier, but how do you view the the dichotomy of at least there's a handful of things that are not going to save, you know, the, the world from climate change, but there's a handful of things that will have a positive impact that can be done right this second in a bipartisan vote uh, and get signed by the president. Do you view those as things that, that we should be doing, that Democrats should have should have helped include in the NDAA, for example, some of the, the Use It Act and some of those other things? Or do you view it in the way that that stuff is small ball and the longer term sort of play is to keep those on the table for a larger negotiation on a bigger, more sweeping bill? And I'll just interrupt to say, Brandon, you've outlined really clearly that the issue that Democrats are wrestling with here, right? Like just to explain it again for David, how you kind of think about these near term, long term things. Yeah, my my issue has been, is this the uh, starting point to build to the type of legislation and policies that we'll need to solve the problem? Or is it an endpoint that Republicans will use to greenwash and move on? Uh, Brandon, you just stole my point. <laughs> <laughs> How would you put um, it, David? <laughs> well, I would more or less put it just the way Brandon did. I mean, <laughs> let, let's say, let's let's picture a Venn diagram here. Uh, okay, there's on, in, in one circle you have things that would reduce carbon dioxide emissions, climate policy, broadly speaking. In the other circle, you have things that the Republican Party, as currently as currently constructed, could conceivably support. Right, and right now you have this narrow overlap, which is they will support carbon policies that benefit fossil fuel companies. <laughs> you know, they they will give fossil fuel companies subsidies to do stuff, right? To, to do stuff that will, you know, w- with an eye towards saving their own asses, right? I mean, they will they will pay fossil fuel companies to do the R and D necessary to save fossil fuel companies, right? Or anything that doesn't that doesn't offend or bump up against the interests of fossil fuel companies. That's what they'll do so far. So, so the question, and, and this very much gets to the politics uh, 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 that we're raising here is, sh- should Democrats say, oh, they're making their first steps. Let's welcome this cooperation, pass these things, create momentum, and they'll keep going, right? Or is the, the, or is the other way to look at it is the primary... Uh, the primary criterion here is service to fossil fuel companies, right? That's always going to be the primary criterion, and climate is always going to be second to that. So this small sliver of Venn diagram is the only thing that the Republican Party is ever going to do. It's, it's all that they're ever going to be willing to do. And so to that end, absolutely don't take them off the table. Absolutely don't do them. Don't give them away for nothing, right? If that's all that the Republicans care about or will do, then absolutely it should be used as leverage to to get larger concessions. I I I think it's the latter, but you guys may may think differently. Do you believe really that that's all they're ever going to be willing to do? I mean, I can, I can say just in my sort of in my career and in my conversations, the way Republicans talk about climate is so far removed from from where it was ten years ago. And I understand that for people who live in this space. They haven't seen a lot of change insofar as bills aren't getting passed, um, you know, regulations are not being implemented. 
But I mean, just from and, I, and again, I know you, you talked about the communications aspect and that you think it's overvalued, but I cannot tell you how different the conversations I have with both electeds and unelecteds in this space on Capitol Hill and otherwise are than they used to be where it used to be like climate like these guys are a joke. I can't believe I even took that meeting and wasted 30 minutes with them to now it's like, all right, we've got a problem. Our voters care. Uh, even if we don't care, we're going to have to find a reason to care. Eventually, something's going to give. That, that's very different than the way it used to be. I'll just note that in the space I cover, quarterly results matter for these young companies needing tax credits and things like that. If you could pass a, a tax credit for energy storage, that could have a huge benefit to the industry near term. And then you just build on that. But I understand we're talking about the politics here, and that's slightly different. But near term wins, wins would have meaning. But sorry, David, over to you. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll make a couple of points. One is the policies in question. I absolutely uh, support. I mean, as I said earlier, I, I, uh, I am at a point of desperation. While I, where I will support uh, uh, just about anything that anybody can make happen. But the question about the Republicans is, it is very true that they are having a bunch of bunch more discussions now to the effect that, look, voters care about this, right? The politics of this are shifting and our sort of prehistoric determined ignorance, our position of sort of grotesque ignorance and, and, and psychopathic disregard is, <laughs> that's, not, that's is not playing well, right? It's not, it, the politics are not playing well. They're not going to last very long. So we need a new narrative. <laughs> and this is what I'm reading when I read the press is a bunch of Republicans saying, we need a new story where, where we're not denialists, where we care about climate change. What I don't hear them saying is we need to save the damn world <laughs> from destruction. What I hear them saying is we need a new story to tell. So what they're going to do is and what they're starting to do is they put out this 12 by 20 thing or 20 by 12, whatever it is, just this sort of collection of policies, literally all of which are subsidies to fossil fuel companies. And they're calling it a climate agenda. And their goal, as far as I can see, and I hate to be cynical here, but it looks to me like the goal is to do it to do just enough stuff that they can call climate policy, that they can bully reporters into saying both sides have climate policies. Who can tell whose is better? You know, Democrats say this, Republicans say that. They so they can just squeeze out of the denialist box they're in and and get in the much more familiar, muddy, inconclusive both sides blah 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 box. That's the box they want to be in, just so they can muddy the issue. I don't see any. I mean. Again, I'm not in these communities, so maybe I'm missing some, but I don't see any sign, certainly, through public communication, that there's any genuine caring about the issue itself. It's all about the narrative. It's all about the story. They just think it's a political liability. David, just to build on that, my sense of this stalemate that we're in is that Democrats have economic power. You know, they mostly live in cities. They have wealth. And Republicans have political power because of the system through the Electoral College, the design of the Senate, through their tactics of voter suppression and gerrymandering. They actually make their votes count more than Democratic votes. So my question Indeed. to you is, how can Democrats use their economic power more effectively to build political power? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, there's two ways to go at that. One is to do what they're doing, which is anytime you win, you know, I wrote a post about this. I was like, here's a list of 20 examples or so, you know, since 2016 
of of jurisdictions passing strong climate and clean energy policies, genuinely strong. Really, like these states are not BSing. Like Washington, Washington's climate package, Colorado. I mean, Colorado went nuts. Colorado went crazy this last session and passed like. 20 bills, all of which are really good, like detailed stuff to utility stuff and just a wonks. It was like a wonks uh, uh, birthday party. So climate and clean energy policy is getting passed at the state and city level. But what do all those 20 examples have in common? Literally all of them happened by virtue of Democrats being elected in overwhelming numbers, supermajority numbers, so that they can overwhelm Republican resistance. That's where things happen now is when you elect a bunch of Democrats. Like, you know, like this is gets back to the sort of carry strategy question. Like, if you want to look at what strategy has worked in the last 15 years, it's electing a bunch of Democrats. It's not bipartisanship. Bipartisanship's gotten nowhere. It's electing a bunch of Democrats that has produced progress everywhere progress has been produced more or less one one is pass all the policy you can where you're in control and that stuff will gain momentum like the more states do this the more cities do this the more they link up with one another the more businesses realign their strategies and their long-term plans and make contracts with one another the more that stuff gets woven into the fabric at the state and city level, the more momentum it gains and the more irresistible it becomes at the federal level. The second answer to your question is Democrats should go after these structural imbalances and structural constraints. But that's probably another conversation. I mean, that's why I'm supporting Elizabeth Warren, is because she's campaigning on that. So, so then, okay, after the elections, right, and if we're left in this scenario that you're talking about, which is, uh, under the rosiest scenario, we can do what Joe Manchin <laughs> supports. Then what do we do? What do we how do we engage with Republicans, David? What do you think? Yeah, because I'll just add, you know, there's no small chance that President Trump will win again in 2020. And Republicans could hold the Senate. And then what does this entire discussion just go on hold for another four years? Do we not even try to build the literacy among, you know, people in the energy industry and new folks entering the industry on these topics who may have varying political beliefs? So I'm just curious yeah, like what if Republicans win again? Does it just like, okay, throw your hands up, we're done here? There's no point in being bipartisan then either? Or or how do you view it, David? Uh, well, there's wins and wins. I mean, <laughs> it, it kind of depends on what happens. I mean, I, I kind of think that... The Republican Party, I mean, this is this all all of this gets to broader political trends that go beyond climate, right? I mean, there's there's this sort of tension of like, modernity is heading one direction and the Republican Party is heading the other direction. And in, and, and in 2012, remember, there's this very famous sort of postmortem that the Republicans did after after uh, uh, Obama's se- second win. And all the Republicans, all the smart people that that, you know, whatever remained of the smart people in that party said at the time, we got to moderate. Like, is that you, Shane? We can't. We're, we're doomed if we continue down the same path. We're electorally doomed. But but because of Trump's win, any motivation to follow up on that or to get serious about that, what little motivation there was, went out the window. And they doubled down on the strategy of anti-modernity. And if he wins again... What you know? What motivation will there be for for reform or for or for uh, you know dialing back the craziness or 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 you know all of this? They will double down again on what they've been doing if they win again, and that's going to be disastrous. It's going to take two degrees 
it's going to take the two degrees off the target uh, target off the table uh, uh, permanently, among other things. It's it's you know going to make the United States a pariah. I mean, I could go on for <laughs> for great lengths of time about what a comprehensive disaster it will be for the world if that happens. But no, there will be zero impetus for bipartisanship. If they win, are you kidding me? Like, when have they ever? The only time they talk about bipartisanship is to bully Democrats when Democrats are in charge. It's just like the deficit. It's not a real thing that they care about. It's a cudgel to beat Democrats with when Democrats are in power. we are talking about the federal level here because that's not actually the only level. Because I know you guys are doing work at state levels, other things like that. And and, and just, you know, on on that last point, I remember 2010 before um, that midterm clean out, um, the Republicans in Ohio and the Democrats were trying to strike a deal to make the uh, gerrymandering process less partisan, similar to what California has done with the nonpartisan commission. And it was actually Strickland's people who wouldn't do it because he thought they were going to win. They didn't want to be have their hands tied, you know, from gerrymandering. So I think both sides certainly, you know, appreciate bipartisanship more when they're when they're not in power than they than they do when they are. But on the on the modernization, the mod point that you talked about, I kind of feel like it, it, it's a little bit weird when you think about it. I'm a pretty centrist uh, Republican, but. I, I think that if you look at any polling or have any conversation with anyone you've ever met, we know that that Donald Trump is not overwhelmingly popular. We know that at no point have we seen 50 percent plus say, you know, definitely this is my guy and he's going to win again. I saw but, a poll today that 91 percent of Republicans but, approve of Trump. Uh, look, I'm just saying, yes. we're talking about the population. So what we know for sure is that he didn't win because he's the most popular guy. And we're all sort of agreeing that there's a chance he's going to win again. What does that say about where the Democrats are going? If he's not winning because he's overwhelmingly popular and yet he's probably going to win, don't we have to be a little bit concerned about what's leading people to, to you know, how are we getting there? Well, a majority well, of people will probably vote for the are Democrat. You, are you asking me the charged question of why Trump won? <laughs> no, 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 I guess what I'm saying Acor- is- According if, to Twitter, it's because of my bad tweets. <laughs> That was just me. That, that was only that was just me trolling you. But no, you know, you know what, I'm actually happy. I'm actually happy you brought that up. I was gonna because what you know, I try to troll you sometimes. But one of the things that that I wanted to say <laughs> is seriously, you're so good at your job. I learn a lot. I work in this space, and I learn a ton reading your stuff. And then I realized that if I like, if I was one of those people who were overwhelmingly partisan, I'd get angry and I'd be refused to learn because it's really really good work. But and I know you have a point of view, and I just sometimes wonder if more conservatives or Republicans are non partisans knew what you know accessed your material and your information and learned about climate science and policy i actually really really think that would help but i know that people tend to be a little bit more closed-minded when they feel like they're being offended at the same time as they're supposed to be learning well this gets into like the role of journalism today and i know david you've written about this also about you know how journalists can both support the institutions and the norms that you know support facts but in this post truth era, you know, even that's being seen as partisan. I mean, there's lots of layers here. And I know you discussed this in your 2017 piece initially on the uh, epistemic crisis that America faces. Could you touch on that? Like how you see the role of journalism in this era? Sure, sure. That's I mean, there's (laughs) there's a lot to that. It's complicated. Uh, I I will say um, that the the model of journalism that most people who care about journalism are familiar with in the U.S., the sort of post-World War II model of kind of objective, down-the-middle, unbiased journalism is is a specific artifact of that era 
and depended on certain features of that era. It's not sort of like the transcendental nature of journalism. It's a it was is in fact an anomaly. It's sort of an anomalous period in journalism relative to journalism's history, and it mainly had to do with during post World War II America. There was um, there was deep agreement on some basic <laughs> facts and principles. And and it's only in the context of of a level of social trust and a level of social consensus about basic facts and principles that something like, quote unquote, ob- objectivity can even make sense. Right. Because it doesn't there's no absolute objectivity. I mean, don't make me get into philosophy again, but there's no such thing as absolute objectivity. You have to take certain premises and assumptions for granted to say anything. So all objectivity was in that period of journalism was just these widely accepted principles and facts that were so widely accepted they appeared invisible. And so and so it, journalism could could pose as a referee Right. Sort of like we're assuming this background set of facts and assumptions, and then we're going to referee these disputes over more specific uh, 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 policies. Right. So that made sense then. The problem is that that post-war consensus has come apart and we no longer share those very basic factual and value assumptions. And once those very basic assumptions have come into contention that have become subjects of debate, then objectivity, as it was conceived of in American journalism, becomes impossible. Like you just can't at, at this point, uh, and I'll put more, a more fine point on it, I think uh, and have written uh, numerous times that the U.S. conservative movement has gone completely around the bend, has created a set of institutions, a sort of like weird funhouse mirror set of institutions of its own. It's, it's sort of like weird funhouse mirror version of journalism, science, uh, uh, policymaking, you name it, which sort of abandoned whatever allegiance those institutions had to transpartisan principles that might restrain both parties, right? I mean, this is sort of the whole idea is like there's rules and principles that we will both abide by. And only in that context can politics even make sense. But now, um, you know, like, the, the assumption of, of sort of like all, all, you know, like racial equality, like name it, the assumption. I mean, the, the basic facts, like what happened in history, what happened yesterday. We no longer agree on any of that because the right has hived off and become its own self-contained universe with its own <laughs> version of history, its own version of facts, its own version of values that don't have any connection to the real world anymore. And in that context, if you as a journalist just try to write to the best of your ability what is true, what you see as true, you're going to get branded as biased to the left because in the famous words of uh, uh, Stephen um, Colbert, the the, the facts have a, a, a liberal bias, especially today. Like if you just say Trump tried to, uh, you know, bully Ukraine into investigating his political opponent, which is sort of the model, the model, the very model of an impeachable crime. That's just it's on record. It's on paper. He's admitted it multiple times. We have multiple witnesses saying it. But if you're a Republican, you can just go out on meet the press as one did yesterday and say, no, that didn't happen. Like there's just no constraints anymore. So. 
How do you do journalism when there's no shared bedrock of facts and assumptions? I think that in that context, you have to abandon this moldy notion of objectivity that has just become a straitjacket on journalism. It's just is now preventing journalism from educating people about what's happening. Everybody is going to deal with that a different way. Every journalist will deal with that a different way. My way is on Twitter, I rant and rave about uh, evil Republicans, but mostly on the site, I, you know, sort of almost in reaction to this environment, I want to know what the hell I'm talking about. Like, to me, that's the rebellion. To me, that's the, the rebellion that journalists should be engaging in is, is a, a rededication to knowing what the hell you're talking about. There are facts out in the world. There are things are knowable and explainable. And I feel like that alone is like a political statement these days. And it's the one I'm trying to make on the site. Well, I definitely grapple with this a lot. And I... I read that 2017 piece you wrote and you conclude by saying, I suppose if I have, you know, a lame aspiration, it's to, quote, start a conversation, uh, you know, <laughs> and that's honestly what we're trying to do here. And you talked about one way or another, the media has got to hang the rules on the wall, reify and reaffirm its commitment to shared norms of accuracy, independence, fairness and decency. And again, you know, with this podcast, uh, it's tough because we're doing a bipartisan podcast every week, but we really are, I think, leaning into that notion of starting the conversation and keeping the conversation centered on the norms and common things we know to be true. But then by all means, debate what you do about policy and the next steps. And so I just thought that your writing on that was really interesting. And of course, you followed up that 2017 piece with a more recent one just in, in November, talking about how the impeachment hearings really brought this epistemic crisis in America, this dueling senses of reality to a, to a head. And yeah, I, I don't know where we, we go from here. I'm curious, are, are you feeling, uh, are you feeling, uh, negative about the, the prospects of how we break out of these, um, echo chambers and these literally two realities? Uh, why? Yes, Julia, <laughs> I am feeling negative. <laughs> I Tell am us feeling about negative about it. As it happens, I am. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just sort of think that like, I mean, I love what you guys are trying to do, but but the notion that the conversation today is between two governing philosophies is itself an illusion that a lot of like, it's funny, a lot of people on the left want to hold on to that illusion because a ton of people on the left wish, like desperately wish in their hearts that there were like interlocutors on the other side that they could have reasonable conversations with. They're so eager to compromise. They're so eager to show how reasonable they are. They, I mean, it's, this is sort of the comedy of the left right now is you've got all these sort of like centrist, moderate leftists desperately wanting to show the world how reasonable they are and how open to compromise they are wandering around looking for someone, anyone to compromise with. <laughs> they just can't find anybody. Cause oh, anyway, I, I mean, uh, I, 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 to to me, what's going on on the right, the base of the right, the Trump right, is not a, a contrasting set of principles that you can discuss with. It's not a set of principles. It's tribal. It is, the, it is, the the interests of white, rural, and suburban people who feel like they're losing cultural primacy in America, and any demographic that was once. <laughs> unquestioned, 
you know, primacy in a culture that is losing that primacy is the most dangerous political force in the world. And it's not a rational, it's not something that can be reasoned with because they really are losing that primacy. They really are going to have to accept being one demographic among many in the U.S. They really are going to have to accept that their thoughts and desires about how the country should go are no more valuable than anyone else's and that the vote of the black Trinidadian hotel cleaning woman in Chicago matters exactly as much as their vote and tough shit if they don't like that. There's no compromise on that question. There's no fooling them about that. They're right. They're right. Do you see this happening? Do you see this to be even within the Republican Party? I I mean, so two things. That's heavy. I I do see it happening. I I don't see the debate occurring, to be very, very clear. I don't see the debate occurring. I do see it happening. I think, you know, one of the driving forces, I think, on the right right now is that our country, I think we all, I hope right and left, consider it the greatest place on earth, the greatest country that's ever been. And I think people, you know, have their own understanding and interpretation of what that means, what rules we play by, what our society is like, what our culture is like, what language we speak, um, how our schools are run, all these sorts of things. And that is for the first time in at least, you know, my short life, but as far as I understand, in, in probably three or two or three post World War generation uh, lives is changing. And I think that that's scary for people. I think that the the political hot potato to me is that as it changes and as things modernize and as, you know, diversity increases, it's it's sometimes how I mean, some people just don't like that. And that that's one. That's another bucket. So let's put that out. There's nothing to talk about there. Um, the deplore the deplorables, if you will. I mean, I, I, I won't because then I'd lose a <laughs> presidential <won't>. election. <laughs> But, but but you so, saw it when you ran for Congress. But uh, you talked about that. I I have and 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 it it so there there's definitely that. But then I also think that and again now I'm going to be you know accused of of shaming everyone who doesn't agree with me. But I think that sometimes just the way we talk about things, like there's a way to to understand that that stuff is changing and that people are being hurt and that their livelihood is going away and that their communities are eroding and and all those sorts of things. There's ways to be sensitive about that. And there's ways to be like, ha ha, finally, you assholes, like now it's but, your turn. But does that even you know? matter if we're really, truly dealing with a different set of facts? Because, you know, empathy and reaching out would only go so far if you're truly living in different worlds. It doesn't get to them. I mean, I can be empathetic all the day long. I can say nice things all the day long. Fox is not going to tell those people I said nice things. I have no access to those people. The people who have access to those people are relentlessly reinforcing a very particular message. So it almost doesn't matter. Like, it almost doesn't matter what Democrats say. What matters is what the ridiculous caricature of a leftist says on Fox. That's the only exposure those people have to the left. I mean, if you go and talk to a Fox viewer these days about Democrats, they will paint a picture that is like medieval horror and it will be a, a picture that I don't begin to recognize. Like no one I know in my circle bears any resemblance to the leftist capital L lib that that plays that 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 these people know. So like, what does it matter what we say? The media has them tr- trapped. The media has exclu- the right wing media has exclusive access to them. So what does it matter what we say? It matters what those media say. That's almost all that matters.
Uh, numerically, I mean, obviously people see it's not any you know individual person, uh, individual journalist or whatever. But numerically, it's not like you know Fox has 400 million viewers and, 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 and no one else has any. But I think you touched on something earlier that I, is a little easier to, to wrap my hands around, which is, you know, are you dealing with a conflict between governing philosophies or are you dealing with something different than that? And, you know, a lot of people ask me why I do this show, why I care about climate, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think there are a set of, of views that are ideological in nature, social views. People's social views are ideological. I can't prove you wrong. It, it's how you feel. But climate policy is science driven. Right. And so that's where I feel like you can actually engage if people will come with you on what is your governing philosophy and why does that philosophy not allow you to you know, grapple with public policies that address this problem? And, you know, I, I does my hope that I don't, I don't pretend to speak for all Republicans. I know that I don't. I know that anyone who watches TV knows that I don't. Anyone who's voted recently knows that I don't. But I do think it's important to get people, especially younger people out there making a case that you can have a different governing philosophy. You can have a conservative philosophy. You can be very conservative and very easily square that with addressing some of these larger issues that we're talking about. And so I hear you. I hear everything you're saying. And what I hope is that if we had this conversation again in five years, we'd both notice a shift in sort of the ground that our feet are standing on. I know you don't sound optimistic. I am not sure who's right. We but also that's, sort to of, know, that's how I think so, about it. So you, Brandon and, and Shane, have started an electrification coalition. I think this is something that we can talk about. It just became, uh, you know, a thing in recent days. And you're working with utilities to try and advance the electrify everything uh, agenda and policies and things like that, which will largely play out at the state level. We talked about the utility regulators, the PUCs at the beginning of this conversation, and they will have a lot of power in determining how decarbonization rolls out. So here you have a bipartisan a group. You have, you know, I'm sure Republicans in states like North Carolina and, and South Carolina, places like that with big utilities making decarbonization policies. So we're talking a lot about the federal level where things look particularly dismal, I think, but there is other stuff happening below that, which I don't know. I just wanted to highlight that that isn't the only arena in yeah, which I mean, things this are is, playing out. You know, where I'm at, I, I, I'm a progressive. I support the Green New Deal. I am volunteering for Elizabeth Warren. I am in regular contact with the Sunrise Movement. I believe in their theory of change. Uh, but I also, you know, was very persuaded by David's posts on the electrification of everything as a way to uh, solve climate change, clean up the grid, electrify everything. And so this is one area where Shane and I have found common ground, and we are going to try to work to advocate for policies uh, that support electrification. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that I saw, David, I might've even seen this from you. I'm not sure, but, but someone, um, wrote about, and I, and I sort of did a little independent digging myself is that, you know, I, I think Brandon and I probably don't agree a hundred percent on what generation resources should be available. But what we did find is that in every grid in the country at this point, so every, you know, I guess distribute distribution grid using an electric vehicle is now, uh, more environmentally friendly than using uh, a gasoline powered vehicle, even if that's not one of the you know areas in California that has a very high renewable uh, generation profile. So, you know, we looked at this and, and, and the types of efforts we do is if we solve for X, we necessarily reduce carbon emissions. We didn't solve all the world's problems. We didn't even dig into generation resource. But there are things where if you look at it narrowly enough, you say, if we accomplish a, then B necessarily happens. In this case, B is uh, reducing our 
a carbon emissions footprint as a nation. And A is something that should be easy to stomach uh, and even enjoy and, and advocate for for conservatives and Democrats because there's something for everyone to like. Well, I, I would just say <clears throat> I don't want to be uh, like the relentless voice of pessimism, even though that is my role <laughs> in life. But but I will say, even if you're setting aside the sort of just raw demographic tribalism that more or less characterizes the the, the, the right these days, and you're just talking about uh, and you're just talking about conservative philosophy, even on that score, conservative philosophy over the years, like, has traveled a long way too. We're a long way from Herbert Walker Bush you know, sort of like pragmatic, sort of like a general preference for small government and less regulation, but not dogmatic and not absolute and willing to to wiggle and compromise to, to you know, this sort of like, <laughs> I mean, what's become of like right-wing philosophy is like government's bad, taxing's bad, spending is bad, regulation is bad. And once you take taxing and spending and regulation off the table, there's not a ton left for government to do. So even even if you're just talking governing philosophy, only the previous generation's more pragmatic and flexible governing conservative philosophy is he going to have any room for this? Like because electrification, I mean pick pick your pick your narrow subject, you're going to the government's going to have to play a role. The government's going to have to step in and do stuff. The government, if we're going to get to to net zero carbon by 2050, for sure, the government's going to have to do a lot of stuff. It's going to have to be a very active government regulating things, <laughs> prohibiting things, subsidizing things, industrial policy, old school industrial policy. That's There is no way to solve climate change that does not involve a robust active role for government and insofar as right-wing philosophy has become just anti-government well it can't help there either can it so you're 100 percent right that there has to be obviously you know policy making but i just don't think that you know I'm, I'm a small government fan myself but i don't think that we're as removed from that era as you think we are so you talked about hw bush who i guess what he was out in 92 i mean the campaign that romney ran in 2012 looked a lot like someone who would govern like George H.W. Bush, in my opinion. So I don't think we're as far removed as the as the several decades there. Oh, I totally disagree. Maybe like maybe like on 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 tone. I mean, maybe he sort of had the tone and mean and sort of a demeanor of this old school patrician Republican. But if you look at Romney's policies, they were just radically, I mean, they're just radically far right. His tax, I mean, he wanted to like raise taxes on middle-class people for a giant tax cut for hyper-wealthy people. Like even, the, I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush would not have gone that. George Herbert Walker Bush raised taxes. Like, uh, so I, I just think, um, I mean, I, I just think there's no, if you want to do something like if George Herbert Walker Bush wanted to raise taxes, which was absolutely the right decision in context, and he's suffered from it ever since. Like George Herbert Walker Bush is now like loathed in Republican circles because that one time he compromised on one thing. Like I just don't see who is the what forces does he command? Where are these What's moderate Republicans? President Trump got elected on a partially leftist platform, you know, protectionism reaching in you know, oh. No, no totally I think that's I well, think that's nonsense. Not, I know that I know that narrative. I think it's nonsense. I, I mean, a he like gestured at at crude like trade war protectionism, which has which is like not even a, not even a thing on the left anymore. A he gestured at protecting Social Security and Medicare for 
white suburban and rural people, right? Herrenvolk populism, I think they call that. He gestured at that, but he vanished like smoke the minute he walked into office. Like the, the, the idea that just because some of the things he said were not hard, conventional hard right doesn't mean that they were in any coherent sense yeah. progressive. I, I don't I don't debate you on what actually <laughs> happened. What I, what I think is interesting is that there was appetite among the voting American population for government help. And so to, to the philosophical point, are all conservatives opposed to the role of government? I don't think that's what played out. It may not be what Trump actually did, but it shows there's appetite for government support and an expanded social services. So I think that's well, interesting about the voting if you population. Talk to political scientists, and if you look at sort of like there's a there's a sort of famous four four quadrant chart in political science, sort of like um, uh, economic liberalism and conservatism and social uh, liberalism and conservative. And, and and this sort of it's well known among political scientists, although I don't think it's like gets much discussion in the popular press, but like there is one quadrant that is both overpopulated and underserved, which is economically liberal, socially conservative, basically. And that's what and you see a lot more of that in Europe. So you see leaders in Europe who are sort of viciously anti-immigration, kind of racist, but also support a robust um, social safety net for the people they're talking to. Right. Cut it off for immigrants. We're going to give it to you the the people the true people of this nation right this sort of like it's not it's not a political mode we're even very familiar with in the U.S. because we've had this weird bifurcated split but like in lots of parts of the world it's 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 easy and intuitive to 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 combine sort of like hyper conservative social like don't like homosexuals and gays immigrants that whole thing and then economic liberalism it, it it's it's basically like a social safety net for us. Right. Like harsh austerity for them, a, a robust social safety net for us. That's an incredibly potent form of politics. And if there was a smarter Trump to come along later, which I am terrified there will be, that's where a smarter Trump would go. He would stick with the gestures he made in that direction that could scramble U.S. politics and really like really send things down the tubes. But what happens is Trump is just. A, a, a moron and a narcissist and he doesn't have any real beliefs and he doesn't have any real principles and he wandered into office and he listened to whoever got him in a room first. And of course, like those <laughs> Washington, D.C. Republican circles are stocked with not with those not with those people on the ground who are like, sure, I'd like more Medicare. They're stocked with the leaders of the party who are all hyper ideological Republicans. And that's who talked to him. And so that's what he did. So we talk about climate change predominantly on the show, but obviously the politics and the larger political ecosystem is super important. But I'm just curious, how did you go from covering climate to, to talking about these bigger philosophical questions around the epistemic, uh, around the epistemic crisis in America? Was there something about covering climate and, and, you know, maybe even climate denialism that bleeds into this broader debate? I'm curious how you made those that jump. Uh, that's a really interesting question. I'd actually, I'd actually say that intellectually speaking, the process was the reverse. So, like, I was always interested in philosophy. You know, I studied philosophy in school. I've always interested in kind of big ideas and systems. I guess systems thinking is how I would put it. Like, what are the big narratives that kind of tie together all these disparate stories we see in front of us? That was always like my my mode of of thinking. And politics, you know, I was always a, I was always super interested in 
in politics. And it was only getting a job at Grist <laughs> that made me <laughs> that made me investigate the environment at all. Like I didn't really I never would have considered myself an environmentalist. I'm a city kid. Like I like I like cities. Um, but but what I found in climate is a kind of environmental, I don't even like calling it an environmental issue, but I don't want to go down that rat hole, but like an issue that is that is almost unique among public policy issues in that one of the things we need is help thinking about it. Like we just genuinely don't know how to think about it. That's one of the biggest challenges of climate change is sort of the ultimate systems problem. It's this system of all our systems together. So it's just like intellectually speaking, for someone who likes systems thinking, it's just like a smorgasbord. It's a, it's, it's a way to – it's a way for thinking – things through in a kind of the way they train you to do in philosophy. It's a way to do that in a way that is actually of use. <laughs> it's actually of some value to the public, which is not something like people who come out of philosophy programs often find. So like climate to me is just like intellectually endlessly fascinating. Like we don't even to this day, as long as we've been talking about it, we still don't even really know what kind of problem it is. Like we don't even really know how to talk about it. So so to me, I'm just like a, a, a pig in poop when it comes to climate change. Like it's, 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 a, it's a thinker's it's a it's a public policy problem that is well suited to the sort of delight, abstract a, a thinkers, philosophical uh, ex-philosophy students, let's say. All right. Well, my final question for you is about where you see hope. And you've mentioned in the past that you see hope among the youth activists on on climate change. And you tweeted recently that uh, you've heard a question from Democrats and other folks on the left about uh, asking, why aren't people on the street marching in enormous numbers? Why did the mass resistance seem to wane so quickly? Why does the country seem to be letting democracy die so passively? Uh, I will note that, you know, back in 1970, there were 20 million Americans who took to the streets for Earth Day. And then just most recently in the September climate strikes, which were huge, but actually had 4 million people worldwide. So obviously far less by comparison. So I'm just curious how you're thinking about, you know, A, where you see hope and how you keep this momentum going. And, you know, is there risk of it waning the way that, say, the Occupy Wall Street movement did? Well, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I mean, I would say I think the information environment has changed so radically that that it's just that you can't it's just difficult to 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 talk to any large group period like right like everything's become so fragmented it's and everyone you know not to get not to get all all, all Bernie here at the end of the at the end of the podcast but late capitalism is like is Everyone's been convinced that their role in life in America is to build their personal little kingdom with all their personal like consumer goods and 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 to fight off everybody who tries to take anything or or in any way diminish it. Like the whole notion of collective action is kind of drained away from culture and it's just like if you have a like if you have a giant march against the Iraq war which was one of the biggest marches in American history and the media just doesn't care like does it make a ripple? You know, like it turns out it wasn't the march itself that was doing anything. It was the coverage of the march. And this is like, this is what we're trying to get our heads around. It's like, it, it's not the events that matter. It's not the things you say that matter. It's not any reality that matters. It's almost entirely what is the filter through which information reaches the public and who controls those channels 
of information. And that turns out to be what matters. Like I always yell at Democrats, especially climate Democrats, who spend these endless, endless, endless hours discussing messaging and the right clever messaging and like doing these tests on college students where they run different messages by them and see which ones get positive results. All this like endless search for cleverness of message, but it's not cleverness that makes messages work in today's media environment. It is repetition. It is you got to get access to people and you got to repeat something to them over and over and over again. And right now, the right has a giant apparatus that is custom built for that purpose to take things in the world, put them through a hyper conservative tribal filter and work the audience up over them. That is that is the goal of right wing media. The left has no custom built machine like that. The left still like and you're seeing this play out with with impeachment. The Democrats information strategy is come up with clever messages that they believe are true. Tell them to journalists and then cross their fingers and hope that the media conveys the mainstream media conveys that story to the public in a way that preserves that message. And it doesn't and it doesn't work. So So do you so have hope that the youth movement will keep beating that drum and they will be successful in, in you know, having that repetition that you think's needed here? Yes, I think they're super smart about getting attention. And I think that is the coin of the realm. Attention is the coin of the realm now. And I think they realize that like it's not necessarily the size of the protest. It is it is sort of like a twist. It's got to be like interesting. It's got to be something you would stop scrolling on Facebook for, right? And if you just are scrolling through Facebook and you like mass protest, you know, people march in streets against war, eh, you know that story. You know what that means. You know all the sort of semiotics around it. Who cares? You're not going to stop and click. It's got to be something that's like different. So I have great faith that the youth movement is clever about modern media and is also clever about power, about building power and deploying power instead of this sort of like older Democrat obsession with persuasion and compromise. They're just the youth movement wants to build power and use power to get policy and then policy makes it easier to do the next step like that's so I have I have faith in their strategy and the other source of of hope is the fact that the the old cranky suburban and rural white people who are watching Fox every day are old and dying and the young people in both parties are way smarter way better in every conceivable way. Like if you want to know the number one source of hope in my life, it's my kids. I have 14 and 16-year-old boys and I compare them to previous generations of teenagers and I'm just like, holy crap, like maybe like being horrible is not inherent to being a teenager. Maybe like, you know, maybe there's something about the 80s that that made being a teenager horrible because my kids are just like smart and self-aware and they're compassionate and all their friends are too. So like, I have great faith in young people and old people, as they tend to do, are dying off. So on some time scale, right, things are going to get things are going to move in a positive direction. As as you all well know, just like the problem is we don't have a lot of time. And if we're going to do what we say needs to be done on climate change, like if you like I said, if you just follow that thread, if we're going to do what say needs to be done on climate change, by 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 necessity, we're going to have to do it with the people 
and the institutions that we now have with all their many, many, many flaws. So like that's the that's the depressing message. So you mentioned time there, David, and running out of it. And we are indeed running out of time. And yeah, sorry to ramble on. So much. Not at all. This is such thought provoking stuff. And we will indeed be clicking on your stories on an ongoing basis. We really do appreciate. Uh, I'll be following you on Twitter and harassing you if I yeah. can. <laughs> Sweet, nice, nice. I'll I'll send you some mean gifts. Then we'll uh, we'll <laughs> have on. we'll have fun. Dave, come down to L.A. sometime and uh, do the show uh, in person with us. It'd be fun. We'll, do, we'll awesome. drink some I'd beers. Love to. Yeah, we should do it over beers. That would be uh, a fun. Oh. First season, every show was over. You know what? Some might argue too many beers. We've cleaned it up a little bit, but I'd <laughs> yeah. love a throwback day. <laughs> Yes, please come down. We'll, we'll reach out about having you on next year. There'll be so much more to discuss, and we'll dig into all this again. This was really awesome. Uh, appreciate your writing and your thinking on this topic. Thanks so much, David Roberts. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Okay, well, that was an amazing and long and winding interview with David Roberts, but I thought it was really awesome. But we didn't have a chance to ask him this, but I still want to put it in our show to end the 2019 season. This is our final Say Something Nice segment. So, of course, it's where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party. So do you have something, Brandon? Yeah, usually in this segment, I try to do some sort of like policy and Shane tends to prefer the anecdotal uh, and personal. But I'm going to take a page out of Shane's book today and I'm going to say something nice about Shane. Mm. Um you know, we just did the episode with Dave Roberts and Dave, uh, David, <laughs> David, <laughs> David uh, has strong opinions about Republicans. And I think it was great that Shane was willing to do the show with him and uh, and listen to him and engage with him and also show some restraint, uh, because one of the premises of our show is that, uh, you know, there's lots of times I show restraint with Shane. Uh, I don't push back on everything he says because if you want to have lots of fighting and screaming and yelling over everything, we think that there are a lot of channels for that. Uh, you can go to cable news, you can go to Twitter. And so uh, Shane being willing to be open-minded and, and hear Dave Roberts out uh, and to not turn the show into a big food fight, even though there are times that I, I know that Shane probably wanted to, to push back. Uh, so to Shane... Uh, thanks for doing the show with, with Dave Roberts and uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We're going to celebrate tonight. Political climate is going out. Uh, we're going to do a big dinner and Woo! we're going to have some Who's fun. Who's paying for this one? <laughs> Separate Dutch, checks, Dutch please. <laughs> Separate checks, please. Um, no, thank you, Brandon. That's awesome. And yeah, having David on was, was great. I read a lot of his stuff and, and obviously a very smart guy. Enjoyed him a lot, but uh, I appreciate you mentioning that because sometimes, you know, we get feedback on the show. I think Brandon and I both like, hey, I know you don't agree with that. I know you don't believe that. Why did you let that go unchecked? Why did you not push back? And our show is about creating dialogue. If I had to interrupt and disagree, you know, vocally and forcefully with every comment that anyone made that I didn't agree with, it wouldn't be a dialogue. It would just be a bunch of people yelling at each other. So obviously we appreciate David coming on. Was there something you disagreed with that you just um, want to like? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't think the, I don't think the Republican party, I don't think, I know for a fact the Republican party is not writ large, you know, awful people who reject science or racist and all those sorts of things. I think Republican party, like, you know, anyone else, people are people. There are some great people out there. There are some less great people out there and there are some, you know, just people doing their own thing. I think one of the things that people don't quite keep track is you say, Oh, well, 
you know, 95 percent of Republicans or 91 or whatever agree with Trump on everything. And the reality of it is most people don't spend all their time tracking politics. Most people are happy when their 401k goes up. Most people are happy when the economy is booming. Most people are happy when they don't have to think about politics because life is going well and they're just busy sort of keeping up with their jobs, keeping up with their families, keeping up with their kids. So I do think that, you know, to say that, oh, because 91 percent of Republicans uh, say Trump's doing a good job, that means that any comment he's made that's offensive, they all endorse it wholesale and that they all agree with it. Um, but but again, this is not a fun conversation to have in the middle of a, of a climate podcast. So we, Brandon and I both do our best to, you know, if you have to say something, you say it. But if you can let it go, uh, let it go. My um my say something nice, actually going back to the podcast as well, would be about John Kerry. We talked a little bit on the podcast. Um, does it matter if these efforts are bipartisan? You know, is the education component of trying to get people on board with climate change important? Um, I know we all had different views on that. Uh, I think it's critically important. I really don't think Social issues are visceral, right? People think what they think. You're never going to talk them out of that. Climate is something very different. If people understand exactly what it is, why it's happening, and how it will impact them, people tend to make practical choices. So I think that the education and attention and awareness aspect is huge. I also think John Kerry knows something that, that I think we all know that a lot of people have lost track of, which is make it bipartisan. Have people understand that we all think this because it's true, not because we're lefties or righties or whatever. And so I, I think what he's doing uh, with World War Zero and, of course, with, with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the sponsor of our show, is fantastic. And uh, I am excited to say something nice to all my political climate colleagues tonight at our fun end-of-the-year dinner. Yay. Well, Thanks so nice to both of you. I am always appreciative that you guys come here every week, ready to engage on these topics, stepping away from all that you do day to day and want to weigh in on this stuff because I do think that this conversation is important. I took from David Roberts' 2017 piece when he said the one thing journalists can do is try to reaffirm the truths that we know to be true. And I feel like we don't question that on the show, although we do debate other stuff. And I'm really proud of what we've created here. So thank you guys. And thanks also to Victoria Simon, our producer, who does all this behind the scenes work to make this show operate so thanks victoria i can't believe this is our last show of 2019 it has been a whirlwind uh, there are lots of episodes for you to catch up on though if you haven't listened to them we've got some great interviews with everyone from youth climate activists to arnold schwarzenegger uh, and others uh, so check those out we're on pretty much every podcasting platform apple google spotify stitcher are we on peloton <laughs> we're on peloton <laughs> i just love that what a guy right you don't have time to go to the God. gym Get you a bite. Shay, we are not talking about the Peloton So ad. good. So oh. good. God. You're right. And that's where we'll leave it this time. Thanks so much for our listeners. We will speak to you in the new year. I think there's an important I think there's an important port. I think there's an important. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it then? I have a stutter. It's so important now. Wicka, wicka remix. Okay. Um, <laughs> 